What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all ideas pertaining to history, mythology, philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am, as always, very excited to be back with another week of The Midnight Myth. This has been a podcast that's been a long incoming. We've wanted to do this for a while, and here we are. Now, if you've been keeping up with your our social media, you know exactly what two coconuts were clicking together. You know exactly what knights who say knee demanding shrubberies and a big tree being chopped down with a herring. We are going to be talking about the beloved, the famous, the absurd and beautiful and amazing movie came out in 1975 with everybody's favorite insane comedy troupe, mostly from England, Money Python and the Holy Grail. Oh my God, it's so exciting to do this. And as we teased on our social media, we're going to try really hard to not make this a whole podcast of us just quoting the movie, but it's very hard to uh, not slip into that because you rewatch this movie and it's every line, every scene, every image is iconic and hilarious and it's just deeply ingrained in our subconscious. So I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm excited to revisit the Arthurian legend, which is a special interest of mine, um, and also to talk about so much of the history and legend and philosophy that goes into this movie. Even though you may think it's a dumb comedy, the wheels that we're turning in these incredibly smart guys' heads really shows up on screen. And yes, it is still also a dumb, a dumb fucking comedy. comedy. Yeah. I mean, I first came to this movie, my parents were big Monty Python fans. So they had me and my sister when we were kids watching Monty Python and the Flying Circus. And then at some point, I was probably around 12, 13, I somehow got the VHS copy of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And me and my D&D playing friends drinking Mountain Dew and eating Chex Mix and Doritos We'd play Dungeons and Dragons, and then we'd put on Monty Python, and we'd sit there, and we would laugh and act out the scenes. Monty Python and the Holy Grail may be the movie I have seen the most in my life. Yeah, that's fair. My, my coming to the movie was very similar. I sort of grew up on Monty Python. My parents had, like, the tapes of their sketches that we would play in road trips, so I remember hearing the Spam sketch and the Spanish Inquisition, but not seeing those sketches. We had recordings. Um... But I remember being pretty young, probably maybe 10 or 11, and it was in theaters for some anniversary or just the, the movie theater in town brought it back for a special screening. And my dad was like, we're going. This is it. And I was too young to get most of the jokes, but I still thought it was the funniest thing I had ever seen, especially the Knights Hussein Nee. Absolutely. I mean, so this is the second Monty Python theme podcast that we've done. We discussed yeah. Life of Brian way back in the beginning. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get back to Monty Python. And let's be honest, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the Holy Grail of Monty Python. Yeah, it is. It's the best thing they've done, in my not-so-humble opinion. I think it's their best movie. I think it holds up the best. And I love all of their stuff. I'm not putting the other things down. Um, so it came out in 1975. So this is our second time talking Monty Python. Our, I think our third or maybe fourth time we've gone into the Arthurian legend. Yeah, probably as like a, a, a big deal, but I've definitely dug into it with a number of our Game of Thrones podcasts. 
uh, and elsewhere. It's something that I love to revisit and really suffuses popular culture. Certainly. So Money Python, it's made up of the comedians, writers, actors, directors, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, who teamed up and co-directed this movie. Their first feature. It was written by everyone um, of the Monty Python. Then there's Michael Palin, Graham Chapman, Eric Idle, and John Cleese. And they play most of the roles within this movie. They're constantly interchanging. Some scenes has an actor playing two different roles in it. And it's about King Arthur first going around, getting his questing knights together, and then being commanded by God to find the Holy Grail. The movie is structured like a loosely linked plot with these individual medieval sketches with the Monty Python troupe. First, the Monty Python troupe go together to try to find the grail. Then they separate into individual quests that lead them back together. And it culminates with them finding the castle, Arg, where the grail supposedly is. And it is occupied by the French. Arthur wants to then take it over with his army. And the police come up and arrest them because they murdered a famous historian way back in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. Right, yeah. It's a ridiculous and absurd anticlimactic ending. I suppose I should have spoiler-walled it, but you know what? It came out in 1975, so if you haven't seen it yet, shame on you. And you know. And you know. Everyone's seen this movie. So that's a basic recap. Let's get into analysis, but before we do that... I know we've got a ton of social media news and partnerships and things happening. Laurel, can you give the rundown of all the Midnight Myth news? We have so much going on. One of the uh, big things that is coming up in the coming months is that we are partnering with some friends of the pod uh, on YouTube, the Pop Venture family, uh, who are awesome people who go around and collect uh, Funko Pops, which we have a, a modest but beloved collection of as well. And they have some of the coolest, most limited edition interested, uh, interesting things that you'll find in that uh, uh, family of toys. So they go around and collect these things, and we decided we would partner up and do a giveaway. So in the coming weeks, pay attention to our social media, their social media, subscribe to their YouTube channel. That's the Pop Venture Family. And we will give you details about how you can enter this giveaway. It's going to line up with the release of the new Star Wars film, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, I'm getting chills. I know. The giveaway will be valued of at least $50. Of limited edition Funko Pops that are Star Wars themed, as well as some Midnight Myth merch. So it's going to be a fantastic little gift basket. uh, And we will give you more details as we go along. Uh, as to how you can enter that giveaway. But definitely in the meantime, check out their YouTube channel and uh, subscribe. And yeah, if you're listening to us, you probably have at least one or two Funko Pops, let's be honest. Or you want one. Or you've seen one and you've wanted one. Um, We started with a small collection. I I forget exactly which one was the first. Yeah. But then you get one, then you're like, now I need this other one to go with it. And then you look at and you're like, hey, I don't have any Marvel Funko Pops. So then you've got to get the Captain America one, which is like, well, if I get the Captain America, I have to get the Thor and Iron Man. And then next thing you know, you've got half of Star Wars, half of Marvel, and uh, some Doctor Who Funko Pops. It's and you great. put them on your wedding cake. And it's you put them on your wedding cake. Deeply, deeply addictive. Yeah. So that's one of the things we have going on. Um, also coming up, we are doing a uh, podcast with our first remote guest. And we're super excited that that is going to be M from Verbal Diorama. Uh, so if you're not listening to her podcast yet, make sure you subscribe and check out what she is doing because it's fantastic. But we are going to be partnering on a movie that both of our podcasts deeply love, uh, and that's going to come out a little closer to Halloween. So we're super excited to work together, and we'll tell you more details as we get closer. What else do we have going on? Uh, follow us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Conversation never starts or stops here on the pod. Uh, find us on Facebook, Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And while you're there, uh, go to www.midnightmyth.com. There's additional content such as supplementary blogs that we like to write. Uh, we also have a fantastic merch store with my lovely wife, Laurel, putting together some really cool Midnight Myth swag. Buy some, tweet it at us. Instagram it at us. We'll give you a a good mention here on the pod. And lastly, if you really do love the pod and you've given us the five-star iTunes review, but you want to give you a little bit more, consider supporting us on Patreon. The podcast is a lot of work and we do it for free. And if we had a little more revenue, all that means is we could give you more podcast stuff. So, and to those that are subscribed on Patreon, thank you. You're fucking awesome. I love you all. Big digital hug to you. 
Oh my gosh, you're hey, so good at that. You better. did this spiel. I did the um, spiel. The other thing is, you didn't toot your own horn there, but uh, we just published episode eight of The Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower sub podcast. Uh, and that series is Derek and Steve going book by book through Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Uh, I'm really excited to hear what they did with part one of book five, Wolves of the Kala, because I know that book is really special to you. So if you uh, are not listening to that, uh, or if you haven't read The Dark Tower yet, definitely read along with Derek and Steve. You can learn so much, and it enriches your your knowledge of that literature and also this podcast. So well done. Yeah, Ka um, comes like a wind, and next thing you know, you get a podcast about it. Yeah. All right, so let's jump into Monty Python and the Holy Grail, all things Grail. So let's uh, let's kick this off here. Now, Laurel, I know that you have a sort of central thesis. So uh, Laurel is our Holy Grail Arthur legend expert on the pod. Oh, stop. She's read almost all of the primary sources, and she's read a lot of the secondary sources, and she's written papers about it for the blog and just because she's Laurel and likes to write papers. So <laughs> what do you think? Comparing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I know it's an absurd, farcical, bizarre version of it. How do you think it correlates and relates to the Holy Grail as a piece of medieval literature? So here's the thing. And this is going to be, uh, this is a hot take. This is a hot take on some centuries old literature here. Um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the best adaptation of the Arthurian legend writ large in cinema. It just is. And I'll offer a couple of uh, you know, pieces of evidence to that Bold in our conversation, statement. but it is, it is what I think is the truth. And part of that is because of the very nature of comedy and the very nature of the absurdity with which it is playing uh, and how deeply that cuts to the core of some of the tone of some of the activity, of some of the uh, questions that are uh, addressed in the medieval literature around the Arthurian legend. Uh, and then part of that is just because these guys are really, really smart and they are deeply steeped in uh, the cultural traditions of the British Isles. They have this understanding. They all went to like Eton and Cambridge and all of these really great schools. So they were uh, they studied all of this, and Terry Jones in particular is a scholar of the Middle Ages. He has written several books uh, trying to understand that history a little bit better, and I think that this movie, in a really smart way, uh, satirizes the Arthurian legend while also uh, just conforming to its conventions better than most adaptations of it do. All right, you're going to have to hit me with some some textual evidence here. I because will, yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested in your statement, but I'm not yet convinced, but I'm willing to be. Convince so, me. So I think every uh, every sketch, every scene of this movie has a, an opportunity for us to say, okay, this conforms to a certain convention of the medieval literature. But I will say here at the beginning, uh, sort of an overarching thing that comes across with this movie is a sense of Arthur and his knights as not necessarily the great paragons of virtue and chivalry, as not necessarily the shining example of what goodness looks like, of martial prowess, of sensitivity to the plight of women, of brotherhood in arms, not necessarily that sort of uh, right-makes-might mentality that you expect in uh, modern adaptations of the Arthurian legend, it's more of a might makes right mentality that we see. So we have some moderately powerful guys wandering around the countryside with weapons, terrorizing poor people, <laughs> terrorizing peasants, and Lancelot running around killing people at a wedding uh, with impunity. Uh, and it's hilarious. This joke is really good but it speaks to something that has been part of the Arthurian legend from its origins, from the earliest Welsh tales that were collected. Uh, this was always a, uh, a war leader with his band of warriors uh, who were able to do whatever they wanted to do because in the stories they were cast as the good guys. And it's only much later that we start to incorporate this idea that they're fighting for a higher ideal. They're fighting for Christianity. They're fighting for love. So I think Monty Python and the Holy Grail best captures that might makes right mentality 
while casting the sort of humor at it. You mentioned the Lancelot slaughtering the wedding party in his story. We also see Arthur and Bedivere uh, torture someone with the knee word, trying to look for a shrubbery, just torture an old woman. Yeah. We also see Ar- Arthur uh, assault Dennis, the the peasant, because he can't beat him in a political debate. Yeah. So we do see these instances where the knights commit violence or torture or whatever to whoever they want, and they do it just because they are the knights and they can get away with it. But <clears throat> having not read the early Arthurian Grail literature, is that you're saying that's what Arthur is like, not this chivalric, virtuous, like just warrior king that we we think of Arthur. When we think of Arthur, King Arthur, we think of an enlightened, kind, but also like powerful, you know, English monarch. So that's a good point and a good question because Arthur and his knights evolve over the course of the literature as the writers are evolving, as their purposes are evolving as well. But take, for example, uh, and this is not specifically a piece of grail literature from the Arthurian legend, but the uh, one of the earliest tales uh, from the Welsh tradition that features Arthur, Arthur is called Kilic and Olwen. And it is a story where uh, a young uh, guy goes to Arthur's court, meets with him and all of his men. There's no knights. It's just a tribal society and, and their war leader. And is like, hey, I am supposed to marry this woman who's a giant's daughter. And what they end up doing is going to this giant fulfilling a series of crazy tasks by just killing people whenever they want and however they want. And then they go back and they win. Uh, So it's got this sense of like, we're the good guys, we can do anything. And we get what we want by doing violence because that is what we were bred to do. And Arthur changes. Uh, He eventually will become that enlightened monarch, but it takes a while for him to get there. And at the end of the day, this is... Uh, legendaria around a 5th or 6th century figure or figures whose great claim to fame was their war prowess, was their ability to fight. And the uh, concept of chivalry, which we have talked at length about on the podcast, uh, really comes down to like how does a society manage testosterone-fueled armed men on horses who have no laws, who have no one who can hold them accountable. And I think Monty Python and the Holy Grail makes fun of the fact that nobody can hold these guys accountable. I love it. So can I ask a follow-up question? Is that cool? Yeah, please. Because you are the Arthurian expert. You've read the sources, as we have said. Do the scholars of King Arthur think Arthur was or is a real person? Oh, you're asking me that question. Yes. Uh, okay, so there is a considerable amount of debate about this in the scholarly uh, environment, and I haven't read everything uh, when it comes to the that scholarly debate. Um, there is definitely a camp that believes uh, that there was a real person, perhaps named something like Arthur, um, who had these decisive uh, victories against the Saxons and was able to push them back for a generation. And there's archaeological evidence to suggest that something like that happened and that it was as a result of one really good, amazing fighter slash leader. Um, someone you can read for that argument is Jeffrey Ash, who's a great scholar. Um, but there is definitely a camp that believes uh, that this is all a whole bunch of bullshit. Uh, certainly there is something that the legend is based around, but uh, we do know that there was no round table. There were no knights. Knights didn't show up until the 11th century. Yeah, much later. Yeah, there was no Camelot that we can tell. There's no evidence that there was this great castle slash city called Camelot. Right, and stone castles didn't show up until the 11th century, but there was probably a sort of Mott and Bailey structure uh, that these guys camped out at. Yeah, you know, and I think the real interesting question isn't whether or not Arthur was in fact real. It's that how Arthur was real for so many people in the narrative sense, in the foundational, mythological, legendary, folklorean sense. And what I like about what Monty Python does in general, and then specifically in this movie, is that Monty Python loves to profane the sacred. Yeah. They love to take the basic core assumptions 
of what people think is true, right, mythological, uh, what people hold to be so very important and dear. And they like to flip it on its head and they like to expose the just the foundational cracks. I'll give an example. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when Arthur meets Dennis and Dennis starts to engage Arthur in a high level very modern political argument over where power resides. Does it reside from God who distributes a sword to a man through a woman in a pond, or does it reside from a mandate of the masses? And Arthur cannot handle this argument. Right. It is putting the medieval and the modern together. And it's saying it's making a historical argument going backwards saying that, Hey, if there was an actual King Arthur, He was, in fact, a military dictator. He seized power. It was a self-perpetuating autocracy that exploits the underclasses. Right. To paraphrase what Dennis calls the system of government of King Arthur. And this is largely accurate. And no wonder, once the cracks of Arthur's power are starting to crumble, he then reacts violently. He then goes and he starts to kick Dennis, which is all really hysterically funny Beautifully written, beautifully acted, lots of mud and filth everywhere. But it it exposed the cracks in the foundation and saying like, hey, yeah, we want to revere King Arthur. If this guy was real, he was probably a dick, right? Like (laughs) he wasn't a good dude. No. He went around assaulting anyone and everyone and carved out a piece of land and called it his own and did so um, not from a chivalric per, uh, perspective, pardon me, not because he was ordained by God, but because he was the best killer in a world full of killers. Yeah. It also uh, kind of casts this funny light on the ridiculous pomp and circumstance around like, well, I am king because the lady of the lake uh, passed me Excalibur, the sword of kings, and I am, I'm ordained to be king. Uh, and this mask of like, I... I, I was installed here by a higher power and therefore I uh, embody higher virtues. And yet if you annoy me enough, I will uh, repress you in front of everybody else. So there's this sense of like uh, tearing away the mask of chivalry, the mask of uh, this uh, higher virtue that he claims to have. Uh, the Dennis scene is one of my favorite scenes. Um, because we get that political conversation, but because I think it's one of several instances in the movie where Arthur, king of the Britons, rides up to some people and says, I am your king, you must serve me. And they're like, I've never heard of you. And I think there's something great about uh, the fact that this, uh, this guy who is like, King Arthur is the character who has been adapted more times than any other character in literature. And yet we're showing him in a time where he's made no impression on the people that he purports to serve, which is probably like more likely than him making an impression on an entire continent full of disparate tribes. Yeah, well, imagine you're a late Roman, early medieval, quote-unquote, Dark Age Britain, and suddenly someone goes, oh, did you hear the Vandals sacked Rome? The who sacked what? Right. Yeah. Huh? (laughs) Can we just try to make some food here? I'm hungry. It's cold here. You know, like you know, like the Vandal sect Rome. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, there is no medieval Twitter. (laughs) Absolutely, and and you know, you're dealing with a historical era in which um, the the knowledge systems, the the ways in which information was exchanged, the ways in which knowledge, um, the ways in which military um, power and everything was just collapsed. You know, you're dealing with the fallout of a failed empire that left huge power vacuums over large, large pieces of territory. And the place where that happened first, historically, was Britain. Britain was the first place that Rome abandoned when the western part of the Roman Empire started to crumble. It hit the Dark Age soonest. It hit the Dark Age, hit it really hard. It was considered the edge of the world. And when your empire's in trouble, you're like... Well, it's not really all that important that we maintain Britain. Exactly. It was a bad situation. Then it was open to all of these invasions from other uh, tribes to the north. And that's why uh, we imagine that, uh, you know, a great leader probably rose up and tried to push that back. 
But yeah, it sort of creates this world where anyone can go, uh, you know, galloping around the countryside, banging two coconuts together, saying, I am your king, bow before me. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting that it decides to set this movie in 932 AD of all times, because the uh, historical Arthur would have been 5th or 6th century, and much of the uh, literature around Arthur starts to pop up in the 12th century. So they pick this time right in the middle. It seems a little bit arbitrary, but it's also like 10th century is when England was unifying. Uh, so there's no such thing as Britain anymore. There are no Britons, uh, or at least they have become Anglicized and Saxonized. And Arthur's going around saying, I'm king of the Britons. And they're like, who are the Britons? Because the Britons didn't really exist. Yeah, so it's just a weird and interesting, but I think kind of comically uh, effective idea to set it in 932. Yeah. And that's right before a, um, Danish Viking, uh, Christian Catholic convert named Snoot went and conquered it and brought it into the Danish empire. Yeah, absolutely. Which was just about to happen. That happens in the 11th century, which then getting a little historical is what triggered the Norman invasion of England yeah. to kick out the Danes because they didn't want the, the Danes to be too powerful. And they were worried that the Danes weren't actually Catholics, that they were just pretending to be Catholics. Yeah. And that they were still secretly worshiping Odin and Thor and all the Norse gods, um, which was, could have been true. You know, it's really hard to convert, you know, a, a pagan society to Catholicism. It takes time. You can't just have one ruler change and all of the people suddenly change too. Yeah. Um, and then that's what led to the formation of the, the, the medieval England nation as we know it. So yeah, I read 932 because these guys know their history, right? Terry Gilliam, I'm sorry, Terry, Terry Jones, Jones yeah. in particular has gone on to be a medieval scholar of some sort. Um, so they know their history. Why pick that date? Because I I just imagine they just had a bunch of dates on a dartboard. And threw a dart. And threw a dart. Like, I think it's that arbitrary because they wanted to make sure that A, it was wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they wanted to make sure that it was wrong. And then B, they just picked a date because it sounded good. Yeah, probably. Yeah, 932 AD. People will believe that's when Arthur was around. Well, and there's something to that with the Arthurian legend too. So, like I said, the 12th century is when there's this big boom in Arthurian literature. And then people are writing this. They're not studying what it was like to be in the 6th century. They're writing Arthur wearing chainmail. They're writing about knights around the round table. They're writing about their modern conventions. And then we get into the high and late Middle Ages. You start seeing knights in full plate armor doing tournaments in the Arthurian legend, things that had nothing to do with that time period because Arthur is a malleable intertextual figure. Because every time we talk about Arthur, we add something of our own time to it that is anachronistic, but that also speaks to why we are interested in interrogating this figure further. I still think it's just interesting cycling back that you think it's the most faithful grail adaptation and it's so absurd and assaulting the the actual like moral fiber and integrity of the entire grail narrative. I find that to be just a beautiful reflection. Well, and here's the thing too. Here's the thing that we often forget about much of the Arthurian literature. Uh, and I'm especially going to talk about Chrétien de Troyes, who uh, was the guy who introduced the Grail narrative to the Arthurian legend. Uh, so he wrote Percival, or the story of the Grail, which is the first time a Grail shows up in that literature and later becomes the Holy Grail or the Cup of Christ. Uh, it's a mistake to think that this literature from the 12th century was not uh, aware of the uh, complex and contradictory and absurd nature of the idea of chivalry or of uh, medieval society at large. We tend to think of medieval people as being more simple-minded. We think of it being a dark age. We think that in between the Roman Empire, this sort of shining example of civilization, and the Renaissance, there was just a whole bunch of dumb people wandering around trying to eat, trying to put food on their table. And hitting each other with swords and, and lances. hitting each other with swords and lances. And yeah, there was some of that. That was There's true. some of that now. But the literature around the Arthurian legend, especially starting with Chrétien de Troyes, is deeply engaged in interrogating the contradictions here, is deeply engaged in satirizing the impossibility of living up to the standard of chivalry or living up to the standards of religion that are put forth. And I think Monty Python is also interested in that. 
Yeah, very, very cool. I'd like to pivot a little if that's okay with you. Let's do it. Um, you know, we're history, mythology, philosophy nuts here. Yeah. <laughs> but every once in a while, it's interesting and it very instructive to look into how a particular uh, movie was made. This is not our natural wheelhouse, but I think it's worth discussing a few points about oh, the production. Oh, especially with this film, yeah. Yeah, because it, there is, a, I think, some, some interesting lessons of what happens when you have really brilliant writers with some really strict limitations. And really green filmmakers. Yeah, so they had never directed a movie, The Monty Python, before. Their first feature film that Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directed was The Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was a really difficult project for them to do for a variety of reasons. One, they had no studio funding them. There were a bunch of independent British rock stars. Yeah, Led that, Zeppelin. and <laughs> Yeah, that were giving the Monty Python money because they wanted to see this movie get made. Um, so they, it's not like it had a big studio budget. So you've got two directors, which presents both opportunities and challenges, I can imagine, because you have two sets of uh, creative input, four sets of eyes on every single problem, which led to fighting. You had a comedy troupe where everybody was equal, that suddenly now two of them were in charge. That led to a lot of fighting. They had to rewrite the script several times. So a quote from John Cleese, who plays Lancelot in the movie, said that from the original script, 90% of it was rewritten. How they wrote it is they all broke up into pairs, and they all each wrote little chunks to it, which seems insane to yeah, me. Yeah, to, to think about doing that for a sketch show is, what, is one thing, but for a movie, to unify that for a movie, it's crazy. Trying to link those into one actual cohesive narrative, it, it, and which is one of the reasons why so many of the scenes feel so differently, thematically, have different styles of humor. It's yeah. because different people were writing those different scenes. And then lastly, they wanted to have a much bigger budget. They wanted horses, for example. They couldn't afford horses. They have one scene with a horse. It's when they kill the famous historian because that's all they could afford. Yeah. So what what came out of that was one of the best gags of the whole movie, which is the coconuts. Yeah, necessity really drove that. Because they couldn't have these characters actually on horses, they came up with a guy hitting two coconuts together, which leads to the opening scene where Arthur is trying to recruit another knight for Camelot. And these other guards are just going crazy about how the fuck does a coconut get to England in right. the dark ages? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? You get such a great joke out of that. And So I think it's worth looking at. There's something very unique in this movie in the circumstances that surrounded it. This is a movie that for all intents and purposes should have collapsed under the weight of its own insanity and limitations. And out of those limitations and conflicts and, and everything. One, it, it's a well-known fact if you're a, a student of Monty Python that this is around the time they all started to hate each other. Right. You know, that they just really couldn't stand each other whatsoever. Which is natural. It's close quarters and it's artistic differences. It's got to be tough. And they continue to date to still work together, except for, you know, Graham Chapman, rest in peace. And I just learned very recently, Terry Jones is a very old and uh, ill man. He is suffering from dementia. So yeah, it's tragic. That is really awful. Um, but I just think it's worth looking at the circumstances of this movie, how it shaped some of the, both the jokes, both the plot and the gags and how unique it was for its time and how that's just not how a movie is going to get made anymore. You're never going to get, you know, a bunch of people, a bunch of British rock stars being like, let's fund a comedy troupe to make a movie about King Arthur. You know, like that is just a thing that happened once and will only ever happen once. Yeah, it's a really unique uh, moment in time. And I, I love drawing attention to the production of this film because so much of their limitation uh, actually defined a lot of the cinematic choices. And that it, that sort of problem solving is so indicative of how talented and how uh, quick thinking and how intelligent these people are that they were able to turn uh, their struggles making this film into some of the most iconic jokes of all time. It's incredible. Yeah, and these guys went on to have amazing careers yeah. in film, television, literature, etc. And you can just see the talent there. You know, Terry Gilliam goes on to be one of the weirdest, greatest directors yeah. of an age. 
and um, this is his first go at directing. And sometimes you can you can tell, like you hear Terry Gilliam talk about this movie, and he is merciless in in his criticisms of it. He's like, we did this wrong, we did that wrong, we did this wrong. Just funny. Anytime you hear Monty Python talking about Monty Python, you realize how much these guys a hated hated each other and b hated their final products. Oh man, it's such a shame because it is. It's so good. Uh, you know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about the other uh, great joke that arrives out of necessity, which is the death of the Black Beast, uh, who is the animated uh, monster with the many eyes who's following uh, Arthur and his companions. And it's all done through animation because they can't afford uh, much else. And Terry Gilliam is a very talented animator, and he's able to do some really cool things with, uh, with medieval uh, illuminated manuscripts and doodles and so on. Um, but the Black Beast disappears when the animator suddenly suffers a heart attack and dies. And then you get this scene of Terry Gilliam seizing up and falling out of his chair and the Black Beast disappearing. And hilarious joke that comes out of not having enough of a budget to keep going and also writing themselves into a corner and not knowing how to get themselves out. So they're like, let's throw in a dumb joke. But it also lines up really perfectly with Grail literature. So Cretin de Troyes writes Percival, the story of the Grail, and presumably dies before he completes it. So the most famous piece of Grail lit literature out there is unfinished because he basically just wrote, ah, and died. That's brilliant. And so all of these French authors and other poets from other countries start to reshape this narrative, start to try and finish it, but nobody does so satisfactorily. So once again, we see this pattern arrive in Monty Python where it's like, okay, we've written ourselves into a corner or we've died while carving something. Uh, let's not end it. Let's do this like perfect uh, anti-climax here at the end so everyone's imagination can run away with it. Yeah, two things I, I definitely want to point out in this movie that I think might be fun to talk about. First is the movie is meta. And by meta, I mean it is aware it is a movie. And oftentimes when you... Ah, uh, yes, the book of the film. Yes, the book of the film. And get on with it. But anyway, now we're just quoting the movie, <laughs> uh, which we said we weren't going to do. When a, when a film becomes aware of itself, I think oftentimes the, the authors of that, the screenwriters, the directors, they are usually making some sort of a comment about movie making or comedy itself by looking directly at the audience, by telling them... We know we're in a movie. What do you think Monty Python is saying about either this movie, about comedy? What Do you think there's a significance or am I reaching? Is there a significance to that self-awareness? To the meta. Um, that's a great question. I do think there is probably a, a part of that that is built into... Um, it, it's built into the comedy and it's also built into a little bit of insecurity around the comedy. So there's a scene where uh, Zoot, uh, and I think this is missing from most of the DVD versions, but it's in the theatrical cut and it's in the cut that's on Netflix right now. Uh, Zoot looks at the camera and says, are you enjoying this scene? Do you like this? We were so unsure about it while writing it. And they're like, get on with it. And then she comes back and is like, I'm really enjoying this scene. Uh, and it's a very strange little cutaway, but it betrays potentially a little bit of insecurity about what they were making. Um, and I, I don't know if I want to say like Monty Python was insecure while making the Holy Grail, therefore they do these self-aware jokes because they land and they're great. But I wonder if that's part of it, this sort of internal questioning that hedges their bets a little bit. Wow. I have not at all thought about it from that lens whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Unless unless they tell us we were insecure, so we did this. Um, I, I think that's a certain that is a way that you could read that that they're aware that maybe this isn't their best scene, so they have the character look at the audience and say, right. "This isn't our best scene." I think it's also about um, the Monty Python belief that comedy doesn't end and it shouldn't have an end. So if you watch a Monty Python flying circus, you see that uh, their sketches never have a climax. They never have a concluding thought. And they just roll right into each other. Then eventually, you yeah. know, a, a foot smashes down and then credits roll and it's over. Perfect. They they believed as writers that writing an end in comedy often ruins it. It feels forced. And if you are watching a really great Saturday Night Live sketch, usually the worst joke is the last one. 
Yeah. You know, typically it's like, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Like they're, and they're largely right about that. Now this movie doesn't have an ending. Now, part of that was also budgetary limitations. Yeah. They, they just literally ran out of money. They ran out of money. They couldn't afford a big battle scene. So that wasn't going to be possible. The other part of it is that they wanted a deliberately subversive, anticlimactic ending that was not actually an ending to the story and that Arthur gets arrested in the present. That they know that this is a movie and that the characters killed a historian and that since they killed a historian, they do all have to get arrested and go to jail. To me, it represents the very like cracks in the foundation of saying these guys were brutal killers who just slaughtered this guy because they could and they finally have to face the consequences. Yeah, And I think the meta aspect of it, it being aware that it is its story, that it is a movie, gives permission to have this very, like, the air is taken out of a balloon ending, which is not like a gag that you're going to just, like, laugh out loud, but God damn, is that clever. It really is. It's it's brilliant. Uh, and, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you made that point because also if you look at the earliest versions of the script, they were going to set this in two different time periods, in the Middle Ages and today, uh, more so than they do in the, the finished version. But the earliest drafts of the script had the Holy Grail uh, uncovered and found in Herod's department store in London at the Holy Grail counter. So it was still going to be an anticlimactic, absurd ending that's like, wait, What? Uh, so they always had this plan to sort of take the air out of King Arthur's tires at the end. But I love that they just hold him accountable for this one murder after they've been just cleaving people in half around the countryside. Absolutely. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'd like to draw attention to a scene. I want to pick it out a little bit okay? because I want to uh, talk about some of the history of medieval England and medieval France, if you're cool with that. That's great. So we see in a scene where Arthur with his knights, they end up going to a castle and they want to recruit the Lord to go on the quest for the Holy Grail if the Lord would give them hospitality, only to find that there are this castle is populated with Frenchmen. And the Frenchmen do some of the most hilarious and funny taunts. They end up throwing all of these animals at them, and uh, they pretty much get defeated by the hands of the French. They have to run away. And at one point, Sir Galahad, played beautifully by Michael Palin, goes, what are you doing in England? Yeah. (laughs) My best British (laughs) accent there. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about this history, and I'm going to go very quickly and simply. But we had mentioned before that the Danish king, um, a Viking king named Snoot, or also sometimes known as Canute, depends on who you ask, had conquered and controlled England and brought it into a Viking empire. Well, this did not sit well with the Catholic Church because they were nervous that this person may in fact actually not truly be a Catholic. So there is a, a, a very powerful Castellan which is someone who owns a castle and lands in medieval times right. named William, who ruled over a part of medieval France called Normandy. Now, William was given the blessing by the Pope under the papal banner of the crusade to crusade England and to bring it under a more stronger Catholic fold. William became known as William the Conqueror. And he went and he kicked the Danes out and he united what we now know as medieval England. Technically speaking, William was a vassal to the King of France. So what does that mean? A vassal is a person who swears an oath of fealty to a more to another lord, typically a monarch. If you are a castellan who owes an oath of vassalage to a king, that means the king can call upon you whenever the king needs to fight. That means the king says, hey, vassal, I need knights because we're going to war. You have to come and you have to fight. 
It also means that that king can tax you if need be, if they needed money, for example. So say, hey, we need some monies. The royal coffers are low. Give us some funds. Give us some crops, etc." It's admitting that your power as the castellan is derived from the monarch. And that's why you swear the vassalage oath. Trouble is, historically speaking, a lot of vassals just never came to the king's aid, in particular in France. France had a problem where it didn't have very strong monarchs, and these monarchs weren't really able to keep their castellans in line. So a lot of these castellans acted very autonomously, and the king of France was like, hey, I need some knights, and they were like, yeah. Come and take them. I have a castle. Like, what are you going to do? You don't have any knights, and I have the knights. I have the knights, and I'm not going to give them to you. So maybe I'll come. Uh, You've got someone that I can marry my daughter to? Right. Oh, you don't? Uh, Sorry, all my knights are busy. Yeah, we're doing our own knight thing here. We're not actually going to come fight for you. Now, imagine you're the descendants of William the Conqueror. You are across the English Channel. You have formed a powerful and um, strong nation, and medieval England was one of the strongest and most centrally located, or I'm sorry, powers more centrally located around the monarchy. Gotcha. This had a lot to do with things like the Magna Carta, which codified a set of laws and a set of traditions that the English kings would live under. So while the English kings were technically vassals to the king of France, they also really weren't at all obliged to ever uphold that vassalage oath. And over time, as the king of France is in medieval England, I'm sorry, in medieval France, waxed and waned and they weren't as strong, England became stronger, they started to look at this place called Normandy and being like, isn't that ours? Like, shouldn't we have Normandy? Didn't we come from Normandy? Isn't Normandy part of England and not part of France? Then you have the setup of one of the great international rivalries of all human history, the rivalries between England and France centered around who owed whose allegiance to which king and who actually should control Normandy. All of this is to say, for a long period in medieval England, the language at the English court was medieval French. The idea that there are French castellans in this is actually rather clever and very historically accurate. There probably were. You know, French was the language of William the Conqueror and the French and the English court for a long time. Eventually that did change. And eventually they became they were no longer considered French vassals at all. But that culminated in something called the Hundred Years' War, a massive medieval war between England and France that has this little-known hero named Joan of Arc who helped finally push the English out and claim Normandy as part of France. But the antipathy and the antagonism and the cultural you know, pug and, like, tug of war between England and France went on until they became allies in World War I. Yeah, but I feel like even today, there is still a sort of friendly acknowledgement of the fact that it's like England and France, you know? They're rivals. Yeah. Um, I I think that's fantastic context. And let's not forget, too, that by the end of this movie, the French knights, the French castellans, are the guardians of the castle where the grail supposedly sits. So they have even, like, formed this gate around the grail. And where this intersects with the medieval literature tradition is that Grail literature comes from France. Like, it's Chrétien de Troyes, it's Robert de Boron, it's the French Vulgate cycle, these these French prose versions of the Arthurian legend that invent and develop the legend of the Holy Grail as it pertains to King Arthur. So here, Monty Python is acknowledging that even the tales of this great British king, a national hero, someone who clearly is tied to a time and place and to a people that tried to fight back against uh, external forces, has been sort of taken over and given one of his fullest and best treatments by the French. And a lot of this has to do with the cultural exchange that you're talking about with, uh, with Normandy, with the French vassals, but also with Brittany, which is literally Little Britain, technically a part of France, but it's a place where uh, the Britons, the Welsh Britons of the uh, early Middle Ages, 
got the hell out of there when they saw the writing on the wall, settled in Brittany, sort of culturally became French, but continued to maintain contact with their Welsh cousins on the British Isles. So there is much more uh, cultural exchange than we imagine uh, between these nations, between the British Isles and the continent, that leads to this figure of Arthur getting such a continental treatment. And if we want to back up even a little more historically, where did the Normans come from? Why is there a place in France right, called yeah. Normandy? They're because, Norsemen. Get, because the uh, Norwegian Vikings went on a pillaging run and were like, we could sail back for winter or we could just stay here and settle. And they settled and they called it Normandy. And that's how they were able to you know, maintain this idea that they had a, a claim to the throne of England because it's connected with their Scandinavian uh, friends, but also they have sort of culturally become French just because they decided it was better. Absolutely, because, well, after a raid, and this is what, and one of the things that ended the era of Viking, and by the way, we're talking about complex history yeah, and we very are simply. Reducing it a lot. Yes, but. so it's not as simple as this, so I just have to point that out. But one of the things that ended the era of Vikings, and it's a, still a great mystery, is Vikings would typically go on raids during the summer, take their plunder back to their homes, and then they'd winter there. For some reason, Vikings stopped doing that and just raided, carved off a piece of territory as their own, and stayed. Right. And that's one of the things. No one knows exactly why that happened. There's lots of theories. We're not, we're not dealing with a highly literate society. They didn't have chroniclers or historians following them around, writing down what happened. Most of what we know from the Vikings comes from the, the, the Christian monks who wrote about them, who were their victims. So we have very little Viking literature from yeah. the Viking perspective. Um, so we just don't know why that happened. But to tie this all together, the idea that there is a French castellan in medieval England in this movie highlights the fact that historically it wasn't always clear where medieval England started and medieval France started, that these borders were in contention that there was a great cultural exchange, that people that identified themselves as French, in fact, owed allegiance to the king of France, were the first kings of England. Yeah. And from this soup, one of the greatest rivalries of history, um, you know, was born. And, and joint custody of King Arthur. <laughs> and yes, and they shared King Arthur. Because at the time where we see now in like the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, medieval England, I'm sorry, medieval France, the kings got strong. Oh, yeah. They eventually knew how to control their castellans. They were able to, to centralize their authority. And as their strength grew, and as their nobles started actually showing up, they became a formidable nation as well. And they're like, wait a minute. This place called Normandy is ours. It's not theirs. And then you had these territorial disputes and it eventually became very clear what an Englishman versus a Frenchman was. But that wasn't the case in the early and high Middle Ages. These things were in flux. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, I would love at this point for you to tell me, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Ooh. In Monty Python and the Holy Grail, do you have a favorite scene or favorite character? And can you tell me why? Yeah, I can absolutely do that. My favorite scene has always been when Lancelot slaughters the wedding party. It's so good. I love how it and subverts Herbert. action trope, tropes with how he runs. And it looks like he's not going anywhere yeah. with the drums. And then suddenly he's there and he's just slicing everyone apart. I love Aha. when Michael Palin gives his speech being like, this is a wedding. Let's not bicker and argue over who killed who. As soon as he realizes that the father there of Swamp Cat Castle realizes that Lancelot could make a better match for his now daughter-in-law, he just tries to murder his son. Like, yeah, I, I love how vicious it is, how much it makes light on the viciousness. I love how stupid everybody is. You know, I, I, I just love everything with Swamp Castle and Lancelot's storyline. And then it culminates in this song with Lancelot just hanging on a rope, being like, could someone give us a push? Like, I just... Absolutely adore it. Oh, I'm One, cracking up over here. It points out the savagery of the medieval uh, knights. It absolutely makes light of the fact that people didn't have autonomous will and you had to marry 
who your father wanted you to marry to benefit your families. And if that match is advantageous and you just murdered all of these innocent people, eh, who cares? We're going to get some more land out of this. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, it's like a perfect, perfect version of Lancelot that is shown in this because he's got this incredible sense of superiority. Um, he is incredibly good at fighting, but he, you know, puts on this face of being like, I am good and virtuous and I am doing the right thing. Uh, which is very Lancelot, but even the most romanticized versions of Lancelot in like Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, where Lancelot is the great hero of that epic. He is literally cutting people's heads in half as he does tournaments. It is the most violent and savage thing you will ever read. And it's passed off like, yeah, but he's the greatest knight who ever lived. So I think that's great. I also think that scene is one of two very good, very subtle digs at the musical Camelot. Um, of course the first one is when they say they're going to go to Camelot and then they have a, a musical number daydream and they say it's a silly place. And then we get, uh, you know, Herbert trying to sing, he'd rather just sing. Um, and we finally get a musical number there that I feel like is again, satirizing the musical Camelot. Um, but yeah, it's just a wonderful, wonderful scene. Yeah. Always been my favorite. So I will pose the same question to you, favorite scene and why I'm having a really tough time choosing between the Black Knight and um, the Knights Who Say Knee. You have to choose. So I'm going to go ahead and go with the Knights Who Say Knee because when I first saw this movie, I was really quite young, and most of the things like the Castle Anthrax went right over my head. Now I think they're so funny I can't even breathe when I'm watching them, but I had no idea why that was funny when I was a kid. But the Knights Who Say Knee just always got me. The idea that there was like this way to distort language or just this one word that you can throw at somebody that makes them cringe, and it's the worst torture that you can inflict on a person. Um, and it was just it was just so silly. And I, I do think today that it lines up again with so much of the early Arthurian legend. We get this sort of pagan imagery of this knight in the woods, or this tribe in the woods that just come out and say things at you, and you uh, freak out about it. And then they ask you to cut down a tree with a herring, or they ask you to bring them a shrubbery. Why? Because. And that's the Arthurian legend. Like, it's knights going through a forest, coming across bandits, or coming across uh, monsters, or these crazy challenges, and undertaking them with a plum. Just being like, yes, of course, I will go and get you a shrubbery, uh, and therefore you will not kill me. It's, it's just very strange, and it's hard to explain why anything happens the way that it does, but it does. All right. And I love it. I want can I want to pick out one other scene to kind of deconstruct yeah, if let's that's do okay it. with you. Please. I want to talk a little bit about the witch burning scene. Okay, yeah. I want to dive into that one. I think there's a few special things. Not only is it just funny, but I do think there's some interesting writing. So in our actual history, witch burning was a legitimate thing. Yeah. It was a phenomenon, but it happened much, much later. Much later. Now, there has always been, especially in Western society, a charge of sorcery as being against the law. If you are a sorcerer using sorcery, you could get arrested, you could get executed and killed. That dates back to the Roman Empire. Sorcery was illegal. You also have a charge in the medieval world called heresy. Heresy is someone that is um, going against an actual church doctrine. So there is a canonized law from the Catholic Church you're saying is wrong. The church has the power to call you a heretic. Witchcraft is the combination of both of these two legal accusations. You are one part heretic and one part sorcerer. That's where witchcraft comes into play. There was a real concern in the late Middle Ages that there were witches. Heretics who wanted to upend the laws of the Catholic Church, who could also practice sorcery. They could do evil, dark magic against someone. And there was a massive outbreak, in particular in medieval England, where people were slaughtering mostly women, um, some men, but almost, I think it's like 80% of witches burned were women. Right, um, yeah. You know, and they were burned at the stake. There were lots of arbitrary and bizarre trial machinations. If you had a birthmark, you were a witch. If you didn't float right in a pond, you were a witch. And what I like to point out is, one, one, one quick question for you. Why do you think they have a witch-burning scene in this? 
They know the history. They know that the Arthurian times was not a time in which there were lots of witchcraft trials. There wasn't even a witchcraft trial. There might be some heretics that are being killed, but also sometimes heretics changed the church. Sometimes heretics was an actual legitimate scholarly debate between how to interpret the Bible and the church said one thing and a church leader or scholar said something else. They were labeled as a heretic. So why do you think there is this scene kind of right in the like first like quarter of the movie? It's a big, big, long scene. Why do you think it's there? Um, Great question. Uh, I'm going to answer that by looking at the function of the scene to the larger narrative, which is that it introduces us to Sir Bedivere uh, and the, the, the main joke that sustains this scene is the absolutely absurd but sound logic that comes from Bedivere when it comes to uh, how to try a witch. Like, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say if she weighs the same as a duck, she is a witch. But by the end of the scene, she weighs the same as a duck. And it feels like... It's showing us that of all of these people, of all of the knights, Bedivere is the one who is the closest to, uh, you know, an intelligent person who uh, reads and who uses logic, but that logic is really dumb. Um, So I I think that's a huge reason why the scene exists, and it's also the only scene um, other than the castle anthrax that directly um, addresses uh, women at all. Uh, So it it is a scene where we... Uh, get this facet to medieval culture that is persecutory of women. And I think when you're making a, a, a film that is satirizing all of these aspects of medieval culture, regardless of when and where they happened, you have to engage with that um, treatment of women, even if it's in a funny, satirical way. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that point. Um, everything that you said. Yeah. I'd like to add a little to it. Please. Because we are exposed to a particular type of reasoning way. I can't go so far as to call it logic, but yeah. Sir Bedivere <laughs> says there are ways that we can determine if this woman is a witch. Question one, what do you do with witches? You burn them. Why do witches burn? Why do witches burn? Cause what else do you burn? You burn wood. So witches that you burn, they must be made of wood. Right. How do we determine if she's made of wood? Can we build a bridge out of her? But ah, can you not also build a bridge out of stone? Ah. What does wood do when you throw it in the water? It floats. What else floats? A duck. Logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood, therefore she's a witch, and we can burn her. Now, epistemology is the study of knowledge. It asks the question, how do we know what we know? When we say we know something, what is the philosophical mechanism that gives us the ability to say we know it? And in this scene, we have the knowledge is the question, is this person a witch? They have to get to the truth or falseness of this. And they go on a skew of reasoning that has at no point in time a stop and a check. Right. Right. So how the scientific uh, method works is that once I have a hypothesis, once I test this hypothesis and then I publish the results it is incumbent on the scientific community to check to make sure I didn't fuck it up. Yeah, recreate my experiment. Everybody else has to do it. Are they getting the same result? Is it different? It's through the process of peer review that the scientific method can come down to the core truth or falseness of an experiment. It is because this knowledge is shared and shared amongst a community of like-minded people who are equally as talented and as trained as you, you, that you can determine whether or not this thing is or isn't true. This is absence of that. There's one authority figure. It is Bedivere. Bedivere's system is not going to be tested. No one else is going to go out there and try it, right? Yeah. So it's completely and totally centralized in one person. So it is an inherently dogmatic epistemological system. I'm going to say this is true because it's true, and I'm going to lead you to the assumptions I want. Rather than actually teaching people to find their own way to look at the world through experimentation, through questioning, through a Greek style of logical philosophical inquiry, he's going to lead them to the conclusion that he wants. And typical Monty Python fashion, turns out he was right. She is yep. a witch because she does weigh the same she amount as a duck. She does weigh the same as a duck. And so it just flips this whole script on its head 
It introduces this horrible practice of witchcraft. It shows how stupid the evidence that people collected against witches was. You know, like at one point, you know, the the woman is dressed as a witch, you know, with a false nose, with a false hat. And, you know, like they did everything they could just to say because they wanted to burn a woman alive. Yeah, because they were bored. Because they were bored and angry. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to call that scene out because a witch burning is a, a dark, fascinating, terrible part of our history. And I think it's worth all of us examining why that happened and how it happened. And I love the way Monty Python exposes the, the corrupt and benign epistemology of Bedivere, um, who time and time again is just wrong about everything. He, at one point he calls the world banana shaped. You know, like, Uh, it's like, he's just, he's the smartest one and he's he's, wrong. He's the authority on all things intelligent. He's the one who comes up with the plans and the strategies and totally blows it every time. Every time. Yep. Because so he's an absolute moron. Yeah. And how sometimes fundamentally incorrect knowledge systems can get embedded into a culture that then perpetuate and protect themselves rather than allowing actual real knowledge to, to seep in. Well, and here's the thing that Monty Python does so well in both of its uh, narrative features. So I'm not including the meaning of life because it's not necessarily narrative, um, but I'm talking about Holy Grail and Life of Brian. It uses this uh, sacred thing like the gospel or like the history and legend of King Arthur. It uses these frameworks to uh, comment on us. So it is making fun of medieval reasoning It's making fun of our history of persecuting women for absurd uh, and ridiculous reasons. It's making fun of our history of violence and conflating violence with higher virtue and crusading. It's making fun of these things and how they have become embedded in our culture, how we have romanticized the past, how we have taken things that are inherently absurd and bad and violent and evil and made them a part of our cultural identity. Uh, And so I think that's something that Monty Python accomplishes really well uh, with with all of its work is to take something sacred, uh, profane it a little bit, like you said here at the beginning of the episode, and use that to remind us that the world we are living in doesn't look that different than the absurdity of the past. Well said. Drop the mic, but they're on stands. Bang, bang. You got anything else? Uh, just that uh, this has been super fun. Obviously, we couldn't get to everything in this movie because it is just chock full of brilliance. Um, you know, I could go through beat by beat uh, every scene and tell you exactly where there is precedent within the Arthurian legend for every ridiculous choice made in this movie. Uh, I could go through scene by scene and tell you every time that they comment on something that is indicative of human nature. Um, but there is just too much. So uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have learned something about (laughs) medieval history and legend here. And I hope that uh, we didn't beat the jokes to death. (laughs) And listen, remember, it's just a flesh wound. Yeah. And until next time, be kind. Run away. Run away.